presence to our kids, remembering and hearing kind of your voice in the background of just remembering God's joy as we give gifts and God's joy in giving us the gift of his son, his personal presence with us. We're going to look this morning at the subject of looking back on the year and gaining perspective from the year and really, in a sense, storing up joy for 2007. Uh, To what extent are our hearts postured rightly toward next year? You know, there's a sense in which I think the way that we look at and we deal with 2006 may set some important trajectories for 2007, may tell us some important things about the coming year. So I want to look this morning at this subject from Luke chapter 17. We're going to start there, if you'll turn with me. Luke chapter 17. So we're here at the end of the year, closing moments of 2006, approaching the threshold of 07, the next couple of days. Much has happened this year, I'm sure, for you as well as for my family. Uh, just even looking at the Christmas pictures, difference between last year and this year. We were taking the Christmas picture not in our own home last year. We were in a house we were renting from Denison Tower Ryan out in Destrehan. And uh, so you see the background is different. The tree is different. Everything is different. My, my oldest son, he has this big gaping hole in the front of his mouth because he had lost his two front teeth. And this year, you know, the Lord takes and the Lord gives. He has gotten just 70% return on one of those teeth. It's just this massive, he affectionately calls it his beaver tooth. And it's, it's back with a vengeance. And there's still a little hole just waiting for the other one to come in. But so much has changed. But besides the sort of things that we anticipate, the everyday changes, the changes in the pictures, the uh, thinner hair in the back and more recession and all those things that are working. <laughs> what happened in 2006? What, what did God do in 2006 in our lives? Did we see it? Did we pay attention? Did we study the works of God in our lives this past year? And how are we postured as we march on toward 2007? A couple of different options here. Is your posture, I'll take anything, just get me out of 2006? <laughs> or are you more of the, bring it on, I'm ready, I was born ready for 2007. I can't wait for it to happen. Are you kind of, do you go real self-improvement oriented when it comes to the end of the year? And I'm going to be a better me and I'm going to stop this and I'm going to start this. And is that the mode that you go into as you posture yourself for 2007? Or is there kind of a silver bullet that you're hoping for in 2007? Maybe if, if this happens in 2007, then it'll be the year. I, I just... Everything will be okay if nothing else happens but this. Then I'll be okay in 2007. Is that your posture? Or is it 2006 was a great year, which probably means 2007 is jinxed? You have more of a superstitious posture about thinking through, well, this didn't happen this year, but probably will next year. I'm due for that, you know. Or maybe the buzz of the city is it just Super Bowl, here we come, 2007. there's a little faith in the room not much well what I hope that we see as we look at scripture this morning is that there is a relationship between grace the grace of God and gratitude that holds out if you will sober warnings on one side and rich promises on the other depending on how we approach This year, on how we look and gain perspective from this past year. The practice of recounting God's goodness to us is not an add-on or an extra points elective for the Christian life. Gratitude is supposed to be a life pattern for everyone who has experienced the grace of God. Gratitude is even tied in terms of the origin of the word to grace, the gratis of God, the grace of God calls for, it beckons, it summons, it draws out gratitude from our hearts. Or does it? 
We're going to look at Luke 17 and see some things this morning, hopefully, to bring us some increased clarity and help us gain perspective on these things. You know, gratitude, if we get it, if, if gratitude begins to be cultivated in our heart and stirred in, in us as a pattern of our lives, gratitude spills out over into a number of categories. It's, in that sense, it's not a solo artist, it's a band. And gratitude comes with accompanists. It comes with other players like joy and outward focus and contentment and patience and charity and encouragement. All those things, they hang with gratitude. They come with gratitude. And all of their opposites come with ingratitude, which is all the more reason to pursue a life of gratitude. Because ingratitude brings joylessness. Who wants that? Pride and entitlement philosophy and self-absorption and complaining and bitterness and cynicism. Are you cynical about the coming year? Are you cynical about this past year? Are you bitter about what happened to you this past year? Let's read this passage together. Luke chapter 17, verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance. And lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, Rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. Let's pray. Well, Lord, to the extent that I spout off at the mouth this morning and just share 31-year-old opinions. Green is all get out up here. Lord, people will not be served. To the extent that your word is preached and your truth is held forth before us, we will be transformed. Do the latter, God. Lord, Come here with us. Speak through your word by your spirit. And bring us to a place where we experience gratitude and everything else that comes with it. Make us a people who are characterized by this. Lord, only you can do that. New Year's resolutions can't do that. We can't will ourselves into gratitude. We need to see you. Help us to recognize your grace see it in places where we've not seen it before and to turn and give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the point of this passage seems clear enough, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, just reading through it, you come right to the end and Jesus pretty much lays it right out there. It's about ingratitude. But isn't it strange, so I'm reading through this passage this week, isn't it strange the way it treats the miracle? Did you see the miracle? If you blink, you might have missed the miracle. It was in verse 14, but it was such a passing thing. You just skated right over this dramatic miracle. And it makes you wonder why. Why would this passage skim over such an incredible miracle? I wouldn't have told the story this way. If this were ramblings from the pseudo-gospel of Matt this morning, it would sound different than what we've read from the gospel of St. Luke. And, and the, the difference would, would substantially be that I would be getting, you know, the London Philharmonic to play behind this thing, shining light shows over the top of this powerful act of grace by which Jesus Christ cleanses not one, but ten dead men. This would have to be, in terms of a, a miracle to a person, to 
to a human being. And we're not talking about the splitting of the Red Sea or the crumbling of the Jericho Wall or the opening of the earth and eating the sons of corn. Okay, apart from those types of miracles, a miracle to a human being, this would have to be second only to the raising of the dead. I would, if I'm thinking of this whole moment and I come to this scene, I'd be envisioning these, these ten lepers hobbling their way down the street. And the, the camera would be looking straight at them, full regular patterns, regular time. And then the camera would swing around to the left and you'd get a profile and then it would go slow-mo. And, and the music would all be playing and would be building this thing up. And here they come and they stand at a distance. Why would that be? We, you bring in the, the background of what leprosy was in that time. These men would be foul. They would be stinking. They would be hideous. They would love to live in isolation from the society. That would be something they would prefer than to be around. Because when they would come in any kind of striking distance with people downwind... People would hold their noses, shout obscenities, run in the other direction, grimace their faces. It was a painful existence. So even when they approach the Son of God Himself, they keep their distance and they shout down the street. And these men would be dead men walking. Their, their skin would be powdery and white and they would have festering sores and parts of their bodies would be eaten away or missing. And their voices, as leprosy would increase, would start to have a croaking sound to it. So they'd have to croak their voice over to Jesus. Jesus, have mercy. They would be, all of them, ten, shouting this at Jesus. Trying to stay far enough to keep their stench to themselves. I wouldn't skate over these realities. These men would probably, most of them, be dead within six to eight years. Ten at best. This thing would claim their lives very quickly. Some of them may have been in this isolated society for several years already. They might be on their last leg, literally, about to die. And they call out to Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He, Unlike other, unlike other passages of Scripture, Jesus doesn't say... Go to the river, wash yourself seven times. He doesn't grab mud and spittle and wipe it in their eyes. He doesn't do any of these things. He doesn't even interact. He doesn't ask them a single question. He simply tells them to do what only a healed leper would do. He doesn't even tell them they're going to be healed. You notice that? He just says, go and show yourself to the priest. Evidently, they had enough faith to turn around and start walking toward the temple. I think that's amazing. I would have said... You know, to show myself to the priest, I'm probably going to need my eyebrows back. I'll probably need, you know, some color in my face. The rest of my ear would be great. You know, because he's not going to approve me and let me back into good society without the things that indicate that I've been healed. So how about a little healing before I turn around and start heading toward the priest? I would have asked that. They didn't. They turned around. And who knows how long they walked? Did they walk ten minutes before they were healed? Or did they take two steps and Jesus saw their faith and said, you're going to go all the way. I'm just going to heal you now. One way or the other, while they're heading to the priest to receive his approval and to be let back into society, instantly, all ten of these men, these dead men walking, were totally cleansed of their leprosy and healed. In a moment. Now, the story goes on. I'm sure, you know, we jumped into this text and we're looking around at the scene. I'm sure these men were ecstatic. Were they not? It doesn't say that they were, but surely all ten of them would have been totally beside themselves with joy. One of them was so joyful, and his joyful had a certain posture, a certain orientation to it, to where he would postpone his visit to the priest. The visit to the priest was just... On the way. That was, it wasn't like these guys were like, I can't wait to see the priest. It was, I can't wait to see the priest because he's the gatekeeper of good society here. So if the priest looks at me and he inspects my skin and he looks at my body, then he will be able to sign off on this thing. And guess what? I get to see my wife again. 
I get to see my kids. I get to touch my children again. One of these men postpones the joy of entering back into his life as he had known it before. And he turns around and he runs, perhaps. I think he's running because he's shouting. He's shouting his way through the streets on his way looking feverishly for Jesus. And perhaps Jesus hears him far off, just smiles, turns around. And when the man sees Jesus and he runs all the way up to Jesus and he falls at his feet. He doesn't bend down. He fell down before Jesus. And it says, giving thanks. I don't think giving thanks meant he said thanks. I think this guy was stuttering. He was reaching for vocabulary. He didn't know what to say. He was just, praise God, but you're, you're amazing. You're, he's just going on and on, and he may even sound like an idiot, but he's worshiping before the feet of Jesus Christ. And Jesus breaks in and interrupts this man's worship. And he's not speaking to the man. Perhaps this man is going on while Jesus sort of has a soliloquy, he, an aside. Because he doesn't say, you've come back. He says, this man. This Samaritan, this foreigner, he's not speaking to him. This man goes on worshiping and goes on worshiping. And Jesus turns to the side. And of all of that bells and whistles of the miraculous work and power and grace of God to heal this man, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, passed over all of that. And he said, zoom in now. And he zooms in to verse 17. Jesus answered, Were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? You can hear the man still muttering praise in the background. Then, He said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. The story's over. The credits are rolling. It's it. That's the whole story. Ten lepers. Ten lepers healed of their leprosy. Now, I expect, again, in that moment at the end of this, like sometimes you see when you you watch a movie that's based on a true story, (laughs) when at the end of the movie they'll put up a picture. Don't they often do this? They'll put up a picture of one of the characters And then they'll put a little write-up about what happened two years later in that person's life. Or three years later, this person retired from his coaching position at Grambling or whatever it was. And it says what happened to that individual. Now, I'm expecting, as the credits are rolling up after this passage, that there's going to be a picture of the nine lepers. And underneath it's going to say, the next year, nine lepers recontracted their leprosy and died. And that the moral of the story is, you better mind your please and thank yous. And then they show a picture of the one leper with his family smiling and the beaver tooth boy in front of the Christmas tree. And you're supposed to get the point that thanks matters to God. That gratitude counts for something. That he delights in the grateful response in those who have received his grace. But... Apparently, these nine lepers went on back to their wives, back to their jobs, back to their children, their grandchildren. (laughs) They did their own thing, and perhaps they lived a fairly good life and died at a ripe old age. Why, though, would you pass over a miracle like this miracle? Even if the point of the text was to highlight ingratitude and not so much the miracle, wouldn't it highlight the ingratitude more if you highlighted the power and the grace of God in this miracle and saving these people from the brink of death? Could it be that the reason this text passes right over the miracle is that's exactly what the lepers did? They skated right past God's gift 
God's work in their lives. And they moved and took it under their arms and ran right back to life as they had not known it for perhaps several years. This story highlights the grace of God and the ingratitude of man. And in that sense, this story is told a hundred different ways in the Bible. This story is, if you will, a reenactment of the fall itself. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Romans 1, verse 18, is a familiar passage. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Now what happened? Ungodliness and unrighteousness have already been mentioned three times in one verse. What happened? Why these descriptions? Here's what happened. What can be known about God is plain to them. Because God showed it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his power, his divine nature, had been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Things that have been made by God to be enjoyed by his created people. So they are without excuse. For, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God, Or, what's it say? Give thanks to Him. Healing for the lepers in Luke 17, like the beauty of God's gifts in creation in Romans 1, was not a prelude to worship the giver. You know what it was a prelude to? Gorging themselves in His gifts. That's all it became. It turned into idolatry, as we see here in Romans chapter 1. You know, these guys, perhaps their thought was, I'm whole, I'm cleansed. Now that I can feel my hands, I can touch my wife's face. I can, I can hold the hands of my kids when I pray with them tonight. I can, I, can, I can feel the wheel of my sports car. I can thumb through my cash clip. I can, I can reclaim sovereignty over the, the scepter of my house, the television remote. I can do all these things that I have not been able to enjoy for all these years. And now God, although they knew God, God has given me these gifts and they race on forward. Turn to Psalms. Well, you don't have to, you don't have to turn there. I'll just run through real quickly. Psalm chapter 78 recaps basically the story of Israel and God's dealings with his people in the Old Testament. And what is it? But the progression of God's grace, man's idolatry and forgetting God's grace and apostatizing and running away from Him, and then God bringing judgment, and then His people repenting, and then God blessing their repentance, and then man falling again. And this happens over and over. It's the chorus of this passage is, Yet they grieved Him still more. Yet He opened the skies and poured manna. Yet they sinned even more. Yet God atone for their iniquities. God's grace, man's ingratitude, has been the defining feature of God's relationship with His covenant people ever since the beginning. Just listen to this. They forgot His works and the wonders He had shown them. In the sight of their fathers, He had performed wonders in the land of Egypt. He divided the sea. Now this is just recounting everything that happened. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, He led them with a cloud. At night, with a fiery light, He split rocks in the wilderness, gave them drink abundantly from the deep. He made streams come out like waters flowing like river. Yet they still sinned more against Him. They tested God in their heart, listen, by demanding the food they craved. You hear the posture? We postured that way toward 2007. I demand the food that I crave. In 2006, I'm not grateful for what's happened in my life because I didn't get what I craved. We have this insatiable appetite for these things. 
Yet he commanded the skies and opened the doors. Men ate the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He rained meat on them like dust. Verse 29, they ate and were filled, well filled. Verse 30, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, God judged them. Because their hearts turned to idols, to the things, to the gifts that God had given And they forgot the Lord Himself. They forgot the giver of grace. Their heart was not steadfast. Verse 38, Yet He being compassionate atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. Look, this is the story of the life of God's people in the Old Testament. But is this the story of our lives year after year after year? As we experience God's grace and His gifts and we run, We run with our healing under our arms. We run with a greater knowledge of Scripture. We run with with more regular family devotions. That God, by His grace, has helped us change in some areas. We run with newfound freedom from bondages that held us this past year. And we run with those gifts straight into the new year. And don't turn around and give thanks. Far from that. Far from going back and shouting our way through the streets and falling at the feet of the Savior in profuse thanks, we simply run forward to enjoy our gifts. What have we experienced or seen God do this year that when we think about it, when we talk about it, it sounds more like a passing reference than an awesome miracle of the grace of God? Are we looking in the right places? Psalm 111, 2. Great are the works of the Lord, studied by all who delight in them. Now, I've been wrestling with this passage the last couple of days in particular in my heart. And just thinking, as there are people in this body who have hearts that are full of gratitude for what God has done this year, as they go and they run and they shout their way back to Jesus' feet, and they give him thanks. Jesus look to those around him. Where's Matt Mason? Where, where are those whose sons and daughters have not wandered into the world? Where are former alcoholics who have made it through another year clean? Where are people who never could get a steady devotional life, and yet this past month I've been faithful to them? We're the single people in the church who by my grace maintained themselves in another year of purity before me. Where are these people? Maybe where are the people who didn't experience all of those things, but they've experienced eternal life through the death of my son and will never hear a condemning word from me. Where are they? Were there not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Yeah, we can't talk about gratitude this morning without talking about ingratitude. We can't talk about gratitude and pretend to block out the machinery of our culture that's in the background. Our culture is a diva-making factory. I don't know what a guy diva would be, a devo. Our culture makes divas. It makes... it. Our, we live in a you-deserve-better culture, don't we? It's rife with entitlement. Our culture doesn't practice gratitude well because it doesn't adequately understand grace. If we would understand grace, we would practice gratitude. This is the logic of grace and gratitude. The one who excels in the subject of grace will excel in the practice of gratitude. The one who is poor in gratitude lacks understanding in grace. Theologians in here, aspiring theologians who have studied the grace of God and yet you don't have gratitude working in your life, look again. Have we yet understood the grace of God if we don't have an impulse of gratitude and gratefulness to God and to others. 
how do we cultivate gratitude? And we, my wife received a gift from Gina Collins two years ago in December. This book called The Art of Thank You, Crafting Notes of Gratitude by Connie Leese. Remember this? Crafting Notes of Gratitude. It's a fascinating, it's a big little book. It's a fascinating little book uh, that not only shows you how to particularly express gratitude through written form, through writing of notes, but it, it tries to motivate us by pointing to the fruit that gratitude brings into the lives of those who express it and the fruit that it bears in the lives of those who are in the receiving end of our gratitude. It just has peppered throughout the book a number of interesting little recorded letters and notes from throughout history. Let me read this entry to you. This famous letter to Mrs. Bixby of Boston. Dear Madam, I have been shown in the files of the War Department a statement of the General of Massachusetts that you are the mother of five sons who have died gloriously on the field of battle. I feel how weak and fruitless must be any word of mine which should attempt to beguile you of the grief of a loss so overwhelming. But I cannot refrain from tendering to you the consolation that may be found in the thanks of the republic they died to save. I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. Yours very sincerely and respectfully, A. Lincoln. Authentic gratitude needs content. Your thankfulness and gratitude and encouragement should be a life pattern for the Christian. But when, let me ask you this. When are people most affected by your gratitude and your gratefulness and your encouragement? Isn't it when there's substance in it? Have you ever had somebody try to maybe commend you in the presence of other people and say a good word about you and you felt worse at the end of it? <laughs> It's like, oh, is that what my life said to you? I'm so sorry. Because that's pretty much true of everybody in the room and most of their kids. That's such a general statement. There was nothing that you could like sink your teeth into. You feel like you weren't known or maybe you aren't even living the kind of life that you think you're living. It's a really disheartening and frustrating thing to experience, isn't it? What, what makes the, the encouragement, the gratitude stick and locate and lock in and, and change us and give us perspective and joy is when it's met with content and substance, when it seems that the person has studied you, doesn't it? When someone, when someone reveals by the way that they speak in front of other people that they've been paying attention to the little things you've been doing, the places you've been, the people you've been interacting with, they've been listening and taking stock and keeping files and now they're just ready to pour that out. They have this cup of contemplation that they've been filling and filling and filling with content and stats about your life. And now they just get it poured out. That's when meaningful encouragement and gratitude happens. I mean, Kyle Silogic asked an interesting theological question one time when we were talking together. And he used it in this context. Does anybody pay attention to Paula Abdul's encouragement at the end of an American Idol performance? Really, over time, as one person after another performs badly and she still says, wow, that was amazing, everybody starts to just totally not pay attention to what she's saying. And what what do they want to hear? They want to hear Simon, the grumpy, cranky Englishman on the stage. They want to hear him say you did a good job. Because when he says you did well, he didn't mean you stunk, but I really like you a lot. He means you did well. And he will back that up with content and substance. To express gratefulness, we need an event. We need an experience. We need statistics. And if you look in the Old Testament, you find God filling the cup for his people. He comes. How many times does God come to his people and say, Thus saith the Lord your God, God the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. How redundant. Now, wouldn't you be a part of God's people and say, God, we know that part. Don't you get tired of just adding that on to your name every time you address us? 
God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt? Why do you always add that? Why does God always step into this, this history with the Old Testament people and remind them of this act of exodus? Was it a rehearsal? Was it sort of a pat on his own back? No. God was not patting his own back. He was fueling their worship. He was filling up their cup of contemplation. He was reminding them of things they had forgotten. And he was saying, in essence, there are things, Israel, that I've done for you, I've not done for any other nation on the earth, and don't you ever forget it. Don't forget my grace. Why would he do that? Because there's such a thing as empty praise. There's such a thing as Jesus stepping on the scene and saying, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far away. There's no real gratitude working and rising and surging in their hearts. This is just worship etiquette. This is just what they're supposed to say. These are the trappings of the rituals that I've given them for thousands of years, just coming out, wrote mechanically. That kind of worship, the kind of worship that God desires when He says, the Father's looking for worshipers who will worship in spirit and in truth. If we, on the other hand, if we sit down, and we like the psalmist, what I love about the psalmist, it just seems like these guys just sat down on a rock somewhere and started to think about, what has God done for me? If we would sit down, meditate, study the works of God in our lives, and go through our calendars with Philippians 4, 8 in our hearts. Meditate on these things, whatsoever things are good report, excellent, praiseworthy, and virtuous, and noble. Think about these things over and over and over, and then what will happen? You'll do what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Rejoice! And again I say, rejoice! Because joy comes in the wake of gratitude. If we would sit down and ponder the ways of God, the goodness of God, then our hearts would start to burst with affection and desire and praise that would honor God. And that, that type of worship would not rise from a surface treatment of the ways and the works of God. It would rise, like Isaiah 12 says, when you, with joy, draw water from the wells of your salvation. You go deep into the work of God and the work of God in your life and others' lives. You pull that stuff up from 70 feet down. That's Incidentally, that's why we love to sing songs with theology in them. With songs that talk about who God is and what God has done. Because I know for me, the thing that awakens worship more than anything else is not a great melody line, great chord progression, a nice groove. It is... It would be in those times where I'm reading something and I'm taking in a glimpse of God again. You think about what's said in a verse like, Before the throne, for it is well. Hmm. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. See what he's doing? He's drawing from the wells of salvation. My sin, not in part, but the whole. Nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. And then what happens? Then he explodes. Praise the Lord! Praise the Lord, O oh my soul! It was like that was bubbling in him, and what he needed to draw it out was substance. The work of God drew it out. Psalm 103, where David comes and he he sits down and he says, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. Maybe he's feeling cold. Maybe this is kind of his come thou fount. Tune my heart to sing your grace. He's saying, Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. All that is within me, bless his holy name. He's trying to kick his soul into gear. He's trying to get worship rolling. But how's he going to do it? Just by mere command? No, what does he say right after that? Bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then what does he then he just begins to catalog what God has done. He redeems my life from destruction, crowns me with loving kindness and tender mercies. As far as the east is from the west, my transgressions are gone from my life. And he starts to recount this, and worship is surging in his heart. Learn from the Psalms. Let's learn how to recount the blessings of God. As we read the Psalms, it's not only about filling the cup 
That's penultimate. The ultimate thing is pouring it out in worship before God. That's what we want to get, right? We want to be a people filled with explosive gratitude. Gratitude that stutters before Jesus. Authentic gratitude must be expressed. Someone said gratitude unexpressed is not gratitude. And look, this is not just about gratefulness expressed from me to God. It's about gratefulness expressed from me to you. All these things apply. Studying the works of God in my life and studying the benefit that has been brought into my life by knowing you. The things that you have done for me, the ways that you have impacted me, the ways that your encouragement has buttressed me when I was in despair or feeling frustrated. We study the work of God in Him as He works toward us and we study the work of God in each other as He works through our relationships. A few weeks ago, we had a cover group sphere meeting. Just some of the guys... The spheres are a, a means, in case you don't know, a means of the, the pastors caring for the covenant groups in the church. So different members of the staff will oversee different groups of covenant group leaders and will get with them, try to get with them on a regular basis, encourage them, provide resources, pray with them, draw them out and hear what's going on in the groups and just encourage. And so we're meeting together. Just give a shout-out to my sphere. That would be uh, Phil and Dave Widener. Frank, Gloria, and Kyle Sidlazic. And we're meeting together a few weeks ago on a Friday morning. And Mr. Cecil Widener, David's grandpa and Phil's dad, had just passed away. And Phil was talking about that and was just talking about how good God has been. And he was emotional. Uh, and it was wonderful. And I was keeping it together very well until he looked across the table to David. Now, David and Lauren had moved in with their grandparents when their, when their health was failing to support them and to be with them. And so Phil turns to David and just starts to commend his son. And it, it was emotional and it was spontaneous and yet it flowed like free verse poetry. It was like a well-crafted letter. And the reason it was like that is because he had a cup that was full. He had a cup that he had, he had thought about. Yeah, oh, he had a rough night three nights ago. He and Lauren were up 2 o'clock in the morning taking care for this need, loving on their grandparents. He had a stock that was brimming and wanting to come out, and all he needed was a contact. All he needed was a table between he and his son and an opportunity to look and to meaningfully give high-octane biblical encouragement. As I'm listening to that just flow of gratitude and gratefulness streaming across that table, I thought, who could be on the receiving end of that and not be deeply encouraged and not feel the joy and the smile of God over their lives? Who could hear that and be unaffected? You know, my sons are largely oblivious to the value of their mom. They're eight and five years old, and they don't know all that she brings to the home. A few years ago, we were at a men's retreat together. It's before we had Ellie, and the boys were maybe five and two. And the word that was coming to me while we were there, we were discussing some things as men, was to fill their cups. And, and Proverbs 31 came to mind where there's this incredible passage about the virtuous and the excellent woman. And it lays out who this woman is and what she does and all these characteristics. And she is she's to be the wife of a king. If you read the beginning of, of the chapter, this is King Lemuel's mother sits this boy down and she says, not just any woman will do. You're going to be a king. You look for this, you look for this, you look for this, 
and she's going to be characterized by this and this, and goes down this rich list of biblical womanhood. And at the end of the passage, in Proverbs 31, something fantastic happens. Verse 27, she looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. And you know what? how rich the word blessed is in the Bible? If you need an illustration, perhaps there wouldn't be one better than simply to go back to Christmas. The angel of God stands in front of Mary. He's re- angel's tongue. He's got a vocabulary that's immense. And he reaches for a word to describe the blessing of bearing the theotokos, the God-child. No woman in history has ever experienced this unique privilege. You will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And what does he say? Amazing are you, Mary? Great are you, Mary? Awesome are you, Mary? No. Blessed are you, Mary. These children rise up and they say, Mom, you are truly blessed. What more can we say? As a song of the praise of these children rises and echoes forth toward the mom, it is overpowered by another song. Guess where that's coming from? Her husband. It says, her husband also, and he praises her. Where are you going to get that praise? Where are the children going to get that blessing? They're going to get it as we pour it out and we fill the cups. And just like Israel, eight and five-year-olds spill cups like crazy. So if we would pull our kids aside and we're trying to invest this into their lives, we would pull our kids aside at eight and five or whatever ages and we would say, what does it mean to say that your mom is blessed? They might not be able to unpack it all that well, but keep pouring and pouring and pouring and praying with them and praying out loud and letting them hear what you're identifying that God has done and how God uses that woman in your home. Well, this may seem to be a a very narrow illustration, but it has broad application, even if you're not married. You study what God is doing. You drink that in. You fill that cup. And then it comes out in profuse thanksgiving. hoping that one day gratitude catches in their hearts and one day you just happen to be at the table when they look across. They say, we've not been able to articulate this in the past, but here's how we feel about it. Don't you want to be able to do that with God? You want to be able to get before God and say what you want to say and have substance behind it and content and be able to just pour that out like the psalmist did. Just an ever-flowing stream of phrases and line upon line of worship to God. Don't we want to be a culture, have a culture of gratitude in which we don't simply do that vertically, but we do it horizontally for one another? We take our relationships deeper and we grab someone with all soberness and seriousness. We say, Thank God for you. I thank God for your presence in my life. The only way we're going to do that, and the joy and the contentment and the patience that flows out of that comes as we learn to fill our cups by taking inventory every day of the blessings of God. Journaling them. If you need to, literally write them down. Let's pray. 
we desire to be students of your blessings. Not so that we could engorge ourselves in them, but so that we can delight in them on our way to you. As Keith has shared before with us, that you are on the end of our desire street. Lord, it's not simply cleansing from leprosy. That is the deal for me, Lord. It's getting to your feet and praising you for your work in my life. Lord, I pray that you would give rise to shouts that have never been heard by you. Give rise to shouts as people say, wow, I I never really intentionally thought about all that God did in 2006. I just wanted to run out of there. But now I feel like there's thanksgiving in my heart instead of bitterness. It's replacing sorrow. It's replacing cynicism. It's replacing despair. As I look at 2007, I'm starting to see, oh, God was good in 2006. God will yet again be good in 2007. Well, God, prove your faithfulness. You have done so time and time again. And when you prove it, don't let us miss it. Don't let us, like this passage, pass right over it, blink our eyes and forget about the greatness of your work. Eric's just going to give us an opportunity through song to fill the cup for us to think about the phrases that we're singing ask the Spirit to illuminate our hearts as we sing and give rise to worship, to praise, to adoration and to gratefulness to God stand mystery of the cross I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary you the perfect holy one crushed your son drank the bitter cup reserved for me your blood Washed away my sin, Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied, Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table, Jesus, thank you.
your blood, your blood has washed away my sin. Jesus, thank you. The Father's wrath completely satisfied. Jesus, thank you. Once your enemy, now seated at your table. Jesus, started this morning thinking about your goodness, Lord how, Lord, how you have encouraged us through your word, God, and instructed us, challenged us to be people of gratitude, people of thankfulness. Lord, I pray, God, that that would, as Matt said, characterize our church, but that we would be people who 
who are characterized, Lord, by our gratefulness to you for yourself and for our salvation and for those of, of, of the church that you have placed in our lives. Lord, and that we wouldn't just be grateful in our hearts, God, but that that gratefulness would would be murmurs around the church, God, that we would hear, hear the stories of your grace, Lord. God, would you, would you be working that in our hearts, Lord? Lord, we have much content. <laughs> Lord, the songs that we sing provide those, those contents. Lord, the reminders of the content, God. The song that we just sang, the mystery of the cross. I cannot comprehend the agonies of Calvary. That you, the perfect Holy One, crushed your Son and drank the bitter cup reserved for me. God, what content we have to be grateful to you. Lord, would you help us to ponder, to study you, and then to apply what we've heard today from your word. Jesus, thank you for saving us. Thank you so much, God. Would you give us volume, Lord? Would you give us vocabulary to thank you, Lord? Would you make that be our our tendency, God, to be people of thanks? We ask. We ask for your help, God. We pray and are so grateful. Amen.